0: Reflections on Herman Melville's Moby Dick by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 5 Now we get a commentary on how, how this... Well, just a commentary. Nor was Stubb the only banqueter on whale's flesh that night, Mingling their mumblings with his own mastications, Thousands on thousands of sharks swarming round the dead leviathan smackingly feasted on its fatness. The few sleepers below in their bunks were often startled by by the sharp slapping of their tails against the hull within a few inches of the sleepers' hearts. Eating of the dead carcass, which is simply a parody of the Christian Eucharist, is the follow-on to this religious impulse that, be, that has been perverted. It has produced a corpse, and now it produces this kind of strange, bizarre, sort of a Eucharist. The steak was cooked by Fleece, the old Negro cook. And Stubb has an interesting complaint. He calls Fleece up, and he's very condescending to poor Fleece. And he calls him up and he complains that the steak is overdone and too tender. I thought that was interesting commentary on on what uh, I would almost call franchise Christianity, uh, that its rituals are overdone and too tender. Uh, so there's Stubb complaining that the, that the steak is overdone and too tender. And, so, and also the sharks are making a lot of noise. So he says to the cook, uh, go preach to them. Get them to calm down. And old Fleece goes over there. It Says, dropping his light low over the sea, so as to get a good view of his congregation. Now, this is also the reversal of the the order of the ritual. that in in the uh, in the proper order of the ritual is the liturgy of the word, and then the litur- liturgy of the Eucharist. But this is going back. This is midnight going backwards. So we've had the Eucharist, and then we're going to have the liturgy. and And Fleece says, "Stop that damn noise!" Straightforward, just. And Stubb says, hey, don't curse them. Stubb says, cook, why damn your eyes? You mustn't swear that way when you're preaching. That's no way to convert sinners, cook. Who dat? Then preach them yourself, suddenly turning to go. No, cook, go on, go on. Well, then, beluded fellow critters, he starts. I'm not going to do too much of this, but this makes a very interesting comparison to Father Maple's sermon in the chapel scene. Old Fleece says, and I, I, I don't know if I'll read this as well as it needs to be read, though you is all sharks and by nature very voracious, yet I say to you, fellow critters, that that voraciousness, stop that damn slapping of the tail. How you'd think to hear? Suppose you keep up such a damn slapping and biting there. Stubbs says, stop swearing, cook. He goes on, Your war fellow critters, I don't blame you so much for. That is nature and can't be helped. But to govern that wicked nature, that is the point. You as sharks, certain. But if you govern the shark in you, why then you be angel, for all angel is nothing more than the shark well governed. And one of the things he says about us is that we're war his uh, mispronunciation is obviously intentional. We're waracious creatures. That's our problem. Now look here, brethren, just try once to be civil, uh, helping yourselves from that whale. Don't be tearing the blubber out of your neighbor's mouth, I say. Isn't that one shark do it as, as tuther to that whale? And by gore none of you has de right to that whale. That whale belonged to someone else. I know some of you has buried brig mouth, bigger than others. But then the brig mouth is not to swaddle with, but to bite off the blubber for the small five sharks that can't get into the scourge to help themselves. Well done, old fleece, cried stuff. That's Christianity. Go on. And it is in a kind of a way. But Stubb, but Fleece says, no use going on. The damn willings will keep a scourging and slapping each other, Master Stubb. They don't hear one word. No use of preaching to, to such damn guttons as you call them till their bellies is full and their bellies is bottomless. And when they do get them full, they won't hear you then. For then they sink in the sea so fast asleep on the coral and can't... Here nothing at all no more forever and ever. There's this is wonderful recognition of the shark quality. The resident shark on board the Pequot at that moment is Stub. You see, these sharks are simply the the symbolic image of what Stub is. It says mingling their mumblings with his own mastications. They're just an image of him. And uh well-meaning fleece have tried to get them to behave as though they knew the truth. And it's no good. It's no use. He says, he, he calls them willins, Two, two mispronounced uh, V sounds here. Waracious and willins for villains. And that's the problem. And all that preaching is not going to do a thing And the kind of Eucharist that Stubb's performing is not going to do any good either. And so he says it's not going to do any good. Upon my soul, Stubbs says, Upon my soul I am about of the same opinion. So give him the benediction, fleece, and I'll away to my supper. Upon this, fleece, holding both hands over the fishy mob, raised his shrill voice and cried, Cussed fellow critters? Kick up the damnedest row as ever you can, fill your damn bellies till they bust then die. So there it is. It just everything has been unraveled from the wedding cake on and the, uh, the 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 attempt is still being made, but it's absolutely impotent. Absolutely impotent. And that's underscored by Stubbs saying, How old are you, Cook? about 90 they say I tell you what I'm coming to cook you must go home and be born again you don't know how to cook a whale steak yet and all that i think indicates a uh, a failure to take that step Again, to compare it to the Inferno that Dante took in Canto 16 of the Inferno, of trading that earlier form of adaptation for something else, moving beyond uh, the familiar pattern of relating to that mystery into something more like a wedding, more like uh, submitting to something. Well, it goes on. There's one one more. Uh, Thing having to do with the carcass, and then we'll get to attendant matters. But uh, the carcass still has to be done away with after they after they uh, get what they need from it. So there's a chapter entitled "The Funeral," and they drop the carcass off. And we're still talking now about the vestigial remains of an original Christian impulse that goes on performing its its operations. And so they drop the carcass off, and it says, Espied spied by some timid man of war or blundering discovery vessel from afar when the distant distance obscuring the swarming fowls nevertheless still shows the white mass floating in the sun and the white spray heaving high against it. Straight away, now, this is to say, there's the floating carcass, and some ship will see it from some distance and notice that it's white and the waves are splashing against it. Straightway, the whale's unharming corpse, with trembling fingers, is set down in the log. Shoals, rocks, and breakers hereabouts, beware. That is to say, somebody writes on the map or on the log of where they are in their journey. Avoid this place, shallow waters. See? And for years afterwards, perhaps, ships shun the place, leaping over it as silly sheep leap over. A vacuum, because their leader originally leapt there when a stick was held. There's your law of precedence. There's your utility of traditions. There's the story of your obstinate survival of old beliefs never bottomed on the earth, and now not even hovering in the air. There's orthodoxy. All of it goes back to the wedding cake that didn't work, see? And there's the corpse that Stubb made, and now it's logged in the tradition someplace. And gets incorporated into it, and it's uh, the attempt now is to avoid the carcass, to avoid the fact that a death has occurred. It should have come as no surprise to us when somebody told us God was dead. That's it's it's it's, uh, it's the bedrock of the tradition. What occurred to me was uh, the encounter with the carcass would. Of course, the carcass is now sunk. Uh, but the encounter with the carcass might uh, inform us that that mode of dealing with it is bankrupt. But what happens is that the one generation's means of avoiding the carcass ends up in the next generation's hymnal. And then you got, you know, the thing just goes on and on and it can go on for a lot longer than it needs to before the crisis is encountered that this whole approach you got to get back to, the, to that wedding cake and the whale line and the crisis Dante had when he had to take that cord off and do something else with it than what he'd been doing with it. Chapter 70 The Sphinx Now you see the 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 body of the whale is what Stub eats. Stub and fleece and the sharks all represent the kind of uh, your run-of-the-mill creatures, right? Great unwashed masses. And then you get the intellectual elite. The intellectual elite are more interested in the head of the whale. And so the head of the whale, should be noted it has been beheaded, is now hanging by a hoist next to the deck, and it's now not midnight but noon. Silence reigned over the before tumultuous but now deserted deck. Up into this noiselessness came Ahab alone from his cabin. It was a black and hooded head, And hanging there in the midst of so intense a calm, it seemed the sphinxes in the desert. Speak, thou vast and venerable head, muttered Ahab, which though though ungarnished with a beard, yet here and there lookest hoary with mosses. Speak, mighty head, and tell us the secret thing that is in thee. Of all divers thou hast dived the deepest, that head upon which the upper sun now gleams has moved amid this world's foundations, where unrecorded names and navies rust and untold hopes and anchors rot, where in her murderous hole this frigate earth is ballasted with bones of millions of the drowned, O head, thou hast seen enough to split the planets and make an infidel of Abraham, and not one syllable is thine. It seems like the Sphinx and wants it to speak. Again, uh, one has to suffer that silence. Two comparable scenes that happen in this part of the text. Uh, they meet the Jeroboam. Jeroboam is a, another whaling ship. The ships they meet are very important. We haven't really got into that so much yet, but, uh, the Jeroboam, uh, Jeroboam was the first, uh, the first king of the northern kingdoms, and when he split off from the from the southern kingdoms in Israel, uh, Judah, and went and formed the northern kingdoms, and became an idolater in a way. Set up golden calves and so on. And Ahab was the king fifty years later who took over the northern kingdom. Uh, so what happens on board the the Jeroboam is a is a prophecy of what will or what has happened on board the Pequod, and what's happened on board the uh, Jeroboam is that a madman has taken over, calling himself a prophet, and has everybody totally terrorized uh, and, uh, and uh, comp- in, involved with his demonic personality. So he's a parallel to Ahab, and he calls himself uh, Gabriel the archangel, and he then, uh, it shows that when the Jeroboam comes along, he too is fascinated by this whale's head. It says the hoisted sperm whale's head jogged about very violently, and Gabriel was seen eyeing it with, with rather more apprehensiveness than his archangel nature seemed to warrant. Another little reference to that. Later in the text, the right whale's head is on the other side of the ship, and we'll, we'll end with that today. But when that's the case, the uh, Fidala, who comes as close as anybody here to being the personification of evil, uh, is contemplating the right whale's head. And it says this, Meantime, Fidala was calmly eyeing the right whale's head and ever and anon glancing from the deep, deep wrinkles there to the lines in his own hand. And Ahab chanced so to stand that the Parsi occupied his shadow. While if the Parsi's shadow was there at all, it seemed only to blend with and lengthen Ahab's. The union's could ask for no more. I mean, this is just perfect that he would be the shadow of Ahab. And it goes on, as the crew toiled on, laplandish speculations were bandied among them concerning all these passing things. But it is in the contemplation of the whale's head that Fadala and Ahab and this wild man who calls himself Gabriel all blend together. But notice it is a decapitated, dead, rotting flesh corpse of a thing that they are interrogating. And suddenly Ahab says, Speak, speak, speak. And suddenly a voice says, Sail ho! Cried a triumphant voice from the main masthead. Aye, well, that's cheering, cried Ahab, suddenly erecting himself, while whole thunderclouds swept aside from his brow. That lively cry upon this deadly calm might almost convert a better man. It's very important, I think, here to see what almost happens with Ahab. He's asking for a voice. And he hears the voice from the mainmast, which said, there's a ship being blown this way. A stranger ship is approaching. That lively cry upon this deadly calm might almost convert a better man. And then he says, Where away? And he's told three points to the starboard bow, sir, and bringing down her breezes to us. And then he says, Remember, he just said, might almost convert a better man. Then he says, Better and better, man. Would now St. Paul would come along that way and to my breezelessness bring his breezes. O oh, nature and O oh, soul of man, how far beyond all utterance are your linked analogies! Not the smallest atom stirs or lives in matter, but has its cunning duplicate in mind. There's much here, more, I think, than I've unpacked. But one thing that's important is that this is called the Sphinx chapter. And the Sphinx asked the question, the answer to which, or at least the answer to which, appears to be Man. And Ahab says, "Speak, speak!" And he and he deals with this whale as 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 the one who's been to these nether reaches where unrecorded names and navies rust, and untold hopes and anchors rot. And he says to the head, "Speak!" And another human being's voice calls out. And the answer to the Sphinx's riddle is man. You see that connection that's there? And he doesn't respond to the voice. He said it might have converted a better man. There's this... There are a couple of times to come still in the text where Ahab is given the opportunity of a human connection which might redeem him if he could just avail himself of it, but he will not. So in chapter 72, we get another picture of the situation it's called the monkey rope and the monkey rope uh, comes in when the one of the harpooners goes down to uh, strip strips of the of the flesh off the side of the whale tied to the side of the ship and the text says down there some ten feet below the level of the deck the poor harpooner flounders about Half on, half on the whale and half in the water, as the mast revol, as the vast mass revolves like a treadmill beneath him. So he's turning on this whale as they're stripping off s- sections of its skin, but the image of a treadmill is probably appropriate here uh, because we're still talking about the weaving together uh, of things, the bringing together or the relegare or the reconnecting uh, binding back of everything. And in this case, the harpooner down there doing that is Queequeg. And uh, Ishmael says this, You have seen Italian organ boys holding a, da- holding a dancing eighth by a long cord? Just so from the ship's steep side did I hold Queequeg down there in the sea by what is technically called in the fishery a monkey rope attached to a strong strip of canvas belted around his waist. So here now we have Queequeg and Ishmael connected by a rope. To get the full impact of some of this, we have to go back to the chapter on the line, which indicated that it looked like a wedding cake rolled up. And there's another little inference there. It's that in, Back in Chapter 60, it says, speaking of the whale line, the harpoon line, both ends of the line are exposed the lower end terminating in an eye splice or loop coming up from the bottom against the side of the tub and hanging over its edge completely disengaged from everything. And the reason that it is disengaged, the text goes on to explain, is for security. It is disengaged because if you happen to hit a whale and the whale sounds at some depth and it's tied to the, to the, to the loggerhead, It'll just pull the boat right down after it. And so they leave the whale line disengaged. Now, it started out looking like a wedding cake, but then it was disengaged. And that was one of its problems, of course. So back to Ishmael and Kwekwek tied together by the monkey rope. Before we proceed further, it must be said that the monkey rope was fast at both ends. fast to Queequeg's broad canvas belt and fast to my narrow leather one, so that for better or worse, we too, for the time, were wedded. And should poor Queequeg sink to rise no more, then both usage and honor demanded that instead of cutting the cord, it should drag me down in his wake. So then, An elongated Siamese ligature united us. Queequeg was my own inseparable twin brother. Nor could I any way get rid of the dangerous liabilities which the hempen bond entailed. Just to go back a little bit, uh, Ahab had questioned the head of the whale that was a sphinx. The answer to the sphinx's question is Man. And Ahab wants this other answer. He wants some other answer. And here comes the voice <clears throat> offering him new friendship, new connection, whatever. And he came. He said, it would have converted a better man, but didn't him. And then we turn to see the monkey rope. And this is two people connected and wedded, which is what these ropes are all about. And in a very dangerous situation. The reason that the the whale line was not tied at the end was for security. And so there's something, some danger involved in this making this connection. He goes on so strongly and metaphysically did I conceive of my situation then that while earnestly watching his motions, I seemed distinctly to perceive that my own individuality was merged in a joint stock company of two. That my free will had received a mortal wound and that another's mistake or misfortune might plunge innocent me into unmerited disaster and death. Still further pondering, I saw that this situation of mine was the precise situation of every mortal that breathed. He says here, "Nor could I possibly forget that, do what I would, I only had management of one end of it, this monkey rope." That's the risky part. The question of evil comes up, and the question of evil comes up in the present in the in the form of the person Fadala, the dark harpooner of Queequeg's privately financed. Uh, uh, whale boat, and uh, Stubb and Flask have killed a right whale, and they're talking about it, and a right whale is not much in the fishery, they say, and they're talking about it, and, and uh, Flask says, uh, how old do you suppose Fadala is, Stubb? And Stubb says, do you see that mainmast there pointing to the ship? Well, that's the figure one. Now, take all the hoops in the Pequod's hole and string them along in a row with that mast for aughts. Do you see? That wouldn't begin to be Fadala's age. Nor all the coopers in creation couldn't couldn't show hoops enough to make aughts enough. Now they've already talked about Fidala being the devil. How old do you think he is? There's the main mast, that's one. Now take all these other all these other hoops and ribs and and string them out as oughts, And that wouldn't be enough. To me, it's a very subtle and wonderful hint about the Pharisaical impulse with regard to evil, which sets in once the Christian mystery has been lost sight of. Namely, one responds to it with oughts and ought nots. And there's never enough of them. You just, they elaborate and elaborate and elaborate, but the fundamental mystery of things has not been addressed. And so one strings out the oughts, and I would say ought-nots, to eternity, and it's not enough to respond to this. And uh, Stubb says he's going to push him overboard. Slash says if he's going to live forever, what good will it do to pitch him overboard? Tell me that. Give him a good ducking anyhow. But he'd crawl back. Duck him again. again. Duck him again. Keep ducking him. not going to do any good, but just keep over and over and over doing it. It's another version of, of Old Fleece saying, it's not going to do any good. There's a passage in Martin Buber where he talks about the moral man. He says, if you have lost the I-thou relation with the ground of your being, to, to use Tillich's term, if you, have, if you have lost that connection, then your religiosity might throw you up onto the shores of morality. And there you would, you know, flounder. And he defines the moral man this way. He says, The moral man is defined by the tension between being and ought to be. And in grotesque and hopeless sacrificial courage, Cast his heart piece by piece into the insatiable gulf that lies between them. So then there's another image that comes up here, and now we're into sort of the again the educated elite or the philosophical questions. and Flask put the right, the right whale's head up next uh, parallel on the other side of the deck to the to the sperm whale's head, and. Uh, Stubb says, I wonder what the old man wants with this lump of foul lard, said Stubb, not without some disgust at the thought of having to do with so ignoble a leviathan. The right whale's not highly regarded. What's with it, said Flask, calling some spare line in the, spo- in the boat's bow. Did you never hear that the ship which but once has a sperm whale's head hoisted on her starboard side and at the same time a right whale's on the larboard, did you never hear, Stubb, that that ship can never afterwards capsize? Why not? I don't know. But I heard that gamboge ghost of a Fadala saying so. And he seems to know all about ship's charms. But I sometimes think he'll charm the ship to no good at last. So this is Fadala's idea, we must remember this, to put these two quail heads up there to balance each other. That's a demonic idea, but according to this text. But then the text goes on. As before, the Pequod steeply leaned over towards the sperm whale's head, and now they lift up the right whale's head. Now, by the counterpose of both heads, she regained her keel, though sorely strained, you may well believe. So, when on one side you hoist in Locke's head, English empiricist, John Locke. You go over that way. But now, on the other side, you hoist in Kant's, Immanuel Kant's, critique of pure reason, and you come back again. And, but, he says, in a very poor plight, which is to say the the whole ship sinks a little further into the water. John Locke, Empiricism, reason. Immanuel Kant, critique of reason. And the text says, Thus, some minds forever keep trimming boats. Reason, critique of reason. Reason, critique of reason. Like that. Back and forth. Notice this is Fadala's idea. Fadala is the personification of the demonic in this, in this book. It's his idea that we should do it that way. Let's talk philosophy. Reason, critique of pure reason. It's really reason and mystery. And then the text says, O oh, ye foolish, throw all these thunderheads overboard, and then you will float light and right. And then he provides a commentary on it and he says, Now let's look at these two whale heads. And he, it says it's a con- it says the sperm whale's head contrasted view. And it purports to be a contrast between the sperm whale's head and the right whale's head, but I think it's really a contrast between the whale's head and ours. He says, Look at the eyes. The eyes are on the side of the head and way back from the forehead. In the sperm whale, particularly, now from this pe- peculiar sideway position of the whale's eyes, it is plain that he can never see an object which is exactly ahead, no more than he can one exactly astern. In a word, the position of the whale's eyes corresponds to that of a man's ears, and you may fancy for yourself how it would fare with you did your sideways did you sideways survey objects through your ears. He says, for most Creatures, like ourselves, the eyes are in front, both eyes are in front, and so we see one picture. The whale's eyes, the whale's eyes, wholly separate the impressions which each independent organ imparts. The whale, therefore, must see one distinct picture on this side and another distinct picture on that side. And then the mystery is what the whale does with these two distinct pictures as opposed to us, who have these two whale heads up, dead, decapitated whale heads, philosophical positions up here, reason and mystery. Anyone's experience will teach him that though he can take in an undiscriminating sweep of things at a glance, it is quite impossible for him attentively and completely to examine any two things, however small, at one and the same instant of time never mind if they lie side by side and touch each other. But if you now come to separate these two objects and surround each by a circle of profound darkness, then in order to see one of them in such a manner as to bring your mind to bear on it, the other will be utterly excluded from your contemporary consciousness. This is our fate. How is it then with the whale? True both his eyes in themselves must simultaneously act. But is his brain so much more comprehensive, combining and subtle than man's that he can at the same moment of time attentively examine two distinct prospects, one on one side of him and the other in an exactly opposite direction? If he can then... Is it as marvelous a thing in him as if a man were able simultaneously to go through the the demonstrations of two distinct problems in Euclid? So he presents here this mystery of a mind that can understand paradox, can take in both of these realms at once. Instead of uh, reason and mystery, I'm just calling it that, instead of reason and critique of reason or but a mind that can superimpose those all together in one and not have to be going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth there's a price to be paid for it he notes the extraordinary uh, the extraordinary vacillations of movement displayed by some whales when beset by three or four boats and he says I think that all this indirectly proceeds from the helpless perplexity of volition in which their divided and diametrically opposite powers of vision must involve them. That is to say, to live in that world where those things blend, where the opposites are comprehended at once and not sequentially, is to surrender some of our will, some of our volition, because we act much better and more forcefully in situations where we ignore half of the picture. Well, one concluding remark in that, well, first the, the ear, he notices that the ear, the ear of the whale is so small you can't even find it. Uh, and then he says, Is it not curious that so vast a being as the whale should see the world through so small an eye or hear the thunder through an ear which is smaller than a hare's? But if his eyes were broad as the lens of Herschel's great telescope and his ears capacious as the porches of cathedrals, would that make him any longer of sight or sharper of hearing? Not at all. Why then do you try to enlarge your mind, subtilize it, Subtilize it. So the whale here is the the, the consciousness of the whale is this model. Drop the two thunderheads, he says, into the sea and bounce up a little bit on that, you know, come up out of the water a little bit. And try to develop that whale's capacity for bringing those opposite perceptions into play at the same moment. And realize that by doing so, it will cost you something. And what it will cost you is that is that what Santayana called the monorail of sheer will. You can't have that and this and this uh, paradoxical consciousness at the same time. One of the things that I think. Melville has done with this text, which is of lasting importance, is that he provided not only for his uh, generation, but for the rest of us, uh, something like uh, an original religious datum to work on. And one of the most uh, 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 disturbing and sometimes exhilarating experiences is to have one's uh, a religious or non-religious existence interrupted by the sudden intrusion of the original religious datum. Uh, And the thing about the the original religious datum is that it will not easily fit into most of the religious categories that have grown up as a way of uh, regarding it. So that it has a a disturbing and puzzling and sometimes uh, off-putting Uh, impact on a culture when it happens. And I think that's what Melville has done more or less consciously with the white whale. And I think maybe the way to proceed uh, is to begin today with a a quotation and uh, quite honestly taken almost at random from Rudolf Otto's book, The Idea of the Holy. A very important book, I think, where um, Otto talks about uh, the essential religious experience and uh, he notes that its key feature is what he calls mysterium tremendum. Uh, And uh, he describes that term this way. The mysterium tremendum is the feeling, excuse me, the feeling of it may at times come sweeping like a gentle tide, pervading the mind with a tranquil mood of deepest worship. It may pass over into a more set and lasting attitude of the soul, continuing, as it were, thrillingly vibrant and resonant, until at last it dies away and the soul resumes its profane non-religious mood of everyday experience. It may burst in sudden eruption up from the depths of the soul with spasms and convulsions or lead to the strange excitements, to intoxicated frenzy, to transport into ecstasy. It has its wild and demonic forms and can sink to an almost grisly horror and shuddering. And it has its crude, barbaric antecedents and early manifestations. And again, it may be developed into something beautiful and pure and glorious. It may become the hushed, trembling and speechless humility of the creature in the presence of... Dash, dash, dash in the text. In the presence of... Of whom or what? In the presence of that which is a mystery, inexpressible, and above all creatures. In one of his early chapters in his book, he uses as the uh, uh, as in the uh, uh, subtitle to the chapter, quotation from the German mystic Terstigian, ter- ter which is, A God Comprehended is no God. So I think maybe it might be helpful to look at this material today, to begin our look at it. Uh, reflecting on how it is that it is Melville's attempt to present the the original religious datum, and to see how what reactions uh, come as a result of that datum, and uh, not in any kind of order here to begin with, because I want to do a little introduction. But be first, I want to quote the text a little bit. Uh, there is a, a chapter chapter eighty called the Nut uh and uh one doesn't know what went into naming these chapters uh, the uh the cavity in the whale's head which contains the the precious sperm oil uh, uh melville has called the the tun and he's analogizing it to the heidelberg tun the great wine cask in the castle of heidelberg well nut is the is tun spelled backwards uh, and there may be some playfulness involved in this nut. And what he's talking about is the skeleton of the, the skeletal head of the whale. And uh, if we're talking about um, attempts to come to grips with this mystery, one of the attempts, of course, is to see the whole operation as pretty much as Freud did, as a projection of the human mind, or the human mind in its one of its mo- more suspect uh, uh, modes, namely wishing. So um, he has something that roughly corresponds to that in this chapter. He says, if you unload his skull of its spermy heaps and then take a rear view of its rear end, which is the high end, you will be struck by its resemblance to the human skull. Be held in the same situation and from the same point of view. Indeed, place this reversed skull, scaled down to the human magnitude, among a plate of men's skulls, and you would involuntarily confound it with them. So, little one of the takes on this thing is a kind of a scientific take, which is how curiously that that uh, that approximates or mirrors the human head. But notice that's only true in its dead and skeletal form after its spermy heaps have been unloaded and so on and so forth. Far from it to appear that way when it's in its living state. Uh, but again, that's, that's sort of the most reductive approach to the, to the mystery of the whale. But I want to read a few sections uh, from chapters 86 and then 79 in which he talks about the inscrutable quality of the whale uh, and its and its multidimensional uh, aspect. As when Otto talks about uh, Rudolf Otto speaks of it as uh, in these sublime terms, but also the intoxicated frenzy and then horror and shuddering and and crude and barbaric and mystical and you know the whole range of responses to the primary religious uh, datum. So here's what Melville says, uh, or Ishmael, depending on how you like it. Accepting the sublime breach, the breach is when the whale comes out of the water altogether, the whole body of the whale comes out of the water. But he says, except for the, accepting the sublime breach, this peaking of the whale's flukes, he's talking about the great power that resides in the, in the tail of the whale, the, the flukes. This peaking of the whale's flukes is perhaps the grandest sight to be seen in all animated nature. Out of the bottomless profundities, the gigantic tail seems spasmodically snatching at the highest heaven. I want to call your attention to the, to the sort of oxymorons in here, namely the, the, what, what seems to be, uh, he goes so quickly from one pole to the other, snatching spasmodically at the highest heaven, so in dreams have I seen majestic Satan thrusting forth his tormented colossal claw from the flame Baltic of hell. Strange little simile for this thing, right? But in gazing at such scenes, it is all in all what mood you are in. If in the Dantean, the devils will occur to you. If in that of Isaiah, the archangel. Because it contains both. The original religious datum contains both of those. The mystery and the shudder. And then he goes on to say, dissecting how I may, then, I but go skin deep, I know him not, and never will. But if I know not even the tail of this whale, how understand his head, much more how comprehend his face, when face he has none. Thou shalt see my back parts, my tail, he seems to say, but my face shall not be seen. That's right out of 33rd chapter of Exodus. God says to Moses, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. You can't, you are not up to the straight on view. I'll let you see the back, the hind quarters. He goes on, but I cannot completely make out his back parts and hint what he will about his face. I say again, he has no faith. And in chapter 79, somewhat along the same lines, he says, in the great sperm whale, this high and mighty godlike dignity inherent in, in the brow is so immensely amplified that gazing on it in that full front view, you feel the deity and the dread powers. Notice that. See, he doesn't let you get away with too much. The deity and the dread powers, more forcibly than in beholding any other object in living nature. For you see no one point precisely, no one distinct feature is revealed. No nose, eyes, ears, or mouth. No face. He has none proper. Nothing but that one broad firmament of a forehead pleaded with riddles. And he goes on a little further to say, But how? Genius in the sperm whale? Has the sperm whale ever written a book? Spoken a speech? No. His great genius is declared in his doing nothing particular to prove it. It is moreover declared in his pyramidical silence. And then he says, If then Sir William Jones, who read in thirty languages, could not read the simplest peasant's face in its profounder and more subtle meanings, how may unlettered Ishmael hope to read the awful caldy of the sperm whale's brow? I but put that brow before you. Read it if you can well, it has what I want to explore today a little bit before we get further into the text is this putting that mystery before one uh, and uh, a feeling obliged to somehow come to grips with it. Uh, the thing itself is not there, and all that is there are those highly suggestive, marginal notations. And uh, we are left. To ponder, well, how about Martin Heidegger? I'm going to quote Martin Heidegger. I hope you won't take that as an indication that I understand him. (laughs) But there are a few things that come through in in Heidegger's writing that that have spoken to me, and uh, one of them relates to this. And he says, truth is present only as the conflict between disclosing and concealing. Truth is present only as the conflict between disclosing and concealing. Truth is present only as the conflict between disclosing and concealing. Or we could say, if we wanted to to uh, put it that way, we would say the conflict between revealing and concealing. Uh, so since tomorrow is Father's Day and uh, since... I had a father once. I, I, I'll i read you a little poem that I wrote about my father, which uh, I, in retrospect I think touches on, on this. Uh, my father died when I was four months old uh, in the Battle of the Bulge, uh, so I didn't have much to go on, a few snapshots and a uh, few uh, pieces of hearsay. Um, but I wrote a poem about him uh, a number of years ago. Actually, I think this poem was actually completed when I was about eight, but I didn't have words for it until I was about thirty-eight. But in any case, I wrote this poem uh, some years ago and uh, I, I want to read it not because I want to indulge in any of my own business but because I want to offer it as, a, as an example of this, this conflict between disclosing and concealing wherein the truth uh, mysteriously lies. I'm just going to quote a few lines from the poem. He gave his absence to me as his gift who could not wait around to give himself. And later in the poem, Then, sudden as the first, a second gift arrived, a silence much like footsteps on the porch. I memorized the knocking like a poem. You feeling that? The absence and the presence. The absence that cannot be extricated from the presence and vice versa. And if one is in, as he... Melville says if you're in the Dantean mood, it looks like devils, and if you're in the mood of Isaiah, it looks like archangels. If one is in one place, it feels like absence. And in a slightly different place, it feels like presence. And in another place, it feels like something of both. And therein, says Heidegger, is the region of truth, real human truth is in that mystery, that mysterious place so that the so that truth what we think of as what we co- whatever comes to our minds when we use the word truth, is something one might say we catch the coattails going around the corner but that is the nature of it to be caught that way uh, the american poet ws merwin says tell me what you see vanishing and i will tell you who you are Or at least be able to tell you whether you're in a Dantean or an Isaian mood. <laughs> so I want to rehearse my favorite uh, apocryphal story about uh, uh, the way God's done things, not only because I made it up, but also because it, it uh, seems to me to fit the situation. Um, and it is that the, the original divine strategy uh, after the fall was simply to try to go down there and wake them up. And so God. Uh, Began that with the call of Abraham and uh, and the sending of Moses and uh, and then after that pretty much relied on these uh, these wild prophets to go in and, and and literally wake them up get them awake and uh, the 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 uh, return to slumber happened almost immediately uh, so it was just having just going over and over this wasn't working. And so my fancy is that there was this, uh, that God sort of threw up his hands and uh, slumped down in the chair uh, and and said to his his, uh, stable of archangels, will somebody please go over to the divine thesaurus and look up a word that is a synonym for uh, awakening, but that has just enough slumber in it so that these people, who are so given to somnambulance might go for it, and they went over and paged through the thesaurus and came up with the word arousal and uh, God said, well, that's it, so we will try a new strategy, and that is to arouse them and that uh, and, and that was the uh, beginning of the Christian dispensation that is to say, this person comes along who is Quite distinct, so distinct that the actually the Christian scriptures themselves may uh, have John the Baptist come do a uh, do a walk on part, you know, early on, just so you'll see the difference uh, between uh, strategy one, and strategy two. Um, and uh, so what happens is that um, what well, I should go back a minute. The Hebrew poets had had anticipated this, or at least intimate they had intimations of the fact that their God was a jealous God and that the, and that the, and that religion was like that other human experience which, in, which borders always on madness and delusion, which is a love affair. And so there, there was already some intuition of that. But now there comes along one who is, whose dominant feature is his attractiveness. Not of his message, uh, but just of his being. And so, uh, it becomes a, an arousal. In, uh, if we use the metaphor of the religious, of the uh, of love affair, uh, we will always be involved in uh, s- some level of delusion or illusion about it. And these will always have, we will always have, be having to correct them, bring things into clearer light, and so on. So there's always some of that going on. That's what beckons us on. Uh, and if religion, religious life has its analog there, uh, another interesting thing we could note about it is that uh, impassioned terminations of the affair are often the very sources of its rekindling uh, in both love affairs and religious life. So anyway, the new strategy was... Um, was evocative rather than provocative. That is to say, it invited a response. The word evocative means to call a voice out instead of to speak a voice. So the whale in not speaking, the mystery in not speaking, if there's going to be a vocation, it's going to have to be launched by the curious one. And uh, so an evocative religious strategy, uh, one that will get the religious wallflowers up off their seats and onto the dance floor, some kind of hiking of the skirt or whatever, something that will get the process going again. Uh, well, Martin Heidegger, let me go back to Martin Heidegger, uh, talked about speaking of the dance floor he talked about the hermeneutic circle now when I said those words hermeneutic circle didn't scare any of you uh, but uh, for those handful of people who understood what Heidegger was talking about uh, which which I, I won't include myself in that group quite yet but anyway uh, it it had disturbing implications um, it sounds tame enough but it's the philosophical version of of what the physicists discovered at the sub- subatomic level of uh, of matter, namely that uh, the, the coordinates disappear and all you have left is relationship, is, is a mysterious, fluid relationship that you can't nail down. When Heidegger said talked of the hermeneutic circle, what, what, he, what he was doing is suggesting that the classical hermeneutics is the, is the way of interpreting something, life, a text an event, an experience, anything. The classical way of interpreting was, here's the thing to be interpreted and we must find out what it means. Boom. From here to there. Heidegger said, it is a circle. There is mystery there. The purpose of a symbol is is not to get us to exercise exercise our intellects until we figure out what it means the purpose of a symbol is to get us into mystery is to draw us into mystery and the way we do that is to begin to perform the interpretive work but not so as to arrive at the answer but so as to get onto the dance floor so as to get drawn in to participation into participation with the mystery well, this requires um, that the interpretive faculty mature to new responsibilities. Uh, it's no longer uh, going to exhaust our duties simply uh, to take educated guesses about what this or that might mean, even very good ones. So that when Heidegger insisted on the hermeneutic circle, he had to immediately, because it was scary to the practitioners of classical Uh, interpretive methods, he had to immediately say, no, 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 it is a circle, but it's not a vicious circle. Uh, It's like a circle dance, uh, more or less. And so he said to them, what is decisive is not to try to get out of the circle, which is what the hermeneutic had been trying to do all along. See, the first thing you do is to try to get out of this thing and get to the answer. And Heidegger says, no, Uh, What is decisive is not to get out of the circle, but to come into it in the right way. So back to this new religious strategy. Jesus said, Whom do you say that I am? Whom do you say that I am? Let's hear all the hearsay first. What, 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 What do you have for hearsay? Cough up all the hearsay. Get it out. Let's get, it, let's get beyond it. Okay? All the stuff you've heard from somebody else. And they, they roll it all out there. Well, it's this and that and that. That's fine. Okay, that's good. Now, whom do you say? Evocative in that sense. The Gospel of John is bracketed, practically. The beginning and the end, with these two statements. That the, first, the first statement Jesus says in the Gospel of John is, What do you want? These people come up to him and say, you know, teach us or where are you going or can we go? What do you want? And uh, at, at the end, of, when he's being arrested, they uh, they all come up with their torches and lanterns and clubs and they and he says to them, whom do you seek? It's practically bracketed. it. Well, I mention that because it is a way of maintaining the mystery, keeping it blank like this, you see, and saying, okay... You make a commitment. And that's where truth is. Truth it comes out of that commitment in the face of that mystery. And then it is a truth that not only reveals something about the mystery, but something about us as well. Wallace Stevens says, The human end in the Spirit's greatest reach, the extreme of the known in the presence of the extreme of the unknown. And again, it's that that place where what's hidden and what's revealed are indistinguishable. And finally, Heidegger concludes this thing where he says what is decisive is not to get out of the circle but to come into it in the right way. And he concludes that by saying in that circle is hidden a positive possibility of the most primordial kind of knowing. So there are two mysteries here. One is the mystery, if we go back to Melville, one is the mystery of the whale in all its, in in all its, uh, multi-dimensionalness. And the other is the mystery of the interpretive approach to the whale. That to enter into the, into the attempt to articulate what this whale means and is draws us into the mystery. We don't literally have to go whaling if we can somehow be be seized by a symbol that draws us into that same mystery. Now, a lot of these people went whaling, people like Flask and Stub, and uh, did them very little good. So um, the point is to be drawn into the mystery. So the whale presents a problem to the. Uh, rational or logical mind to the, a larger consciousness that presents a mystery. Uh, problems are supposed to have answers, uh, and mysteries don't need them. Uh, but if we approach it as a problem, we have, in the English language, something that's very helpful, which is that uh, we often call the answer to a problem a solution. And uh, that really is psychologically the answer to the problem, is a solution. The alchemist understood this. Uh, you must get it into solution. You must re-dissolve it. So you must enter in yourself to the solution. You must take a bath. See? That's the problem, is that you need a bath.